Readings be in both Leviticus 10 and Hebrews chapter 10. So if you could go first to Leviticus 10, we'll read the first three verses to remind what we have heard and to remind ourselves that the words that we have heard last Lord's Day come in the context of public worship. And then we'll flip over to Hebrews chapter 10 to see how those words fit in the new assembly, the new covenant assembly as well. All right, Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Please give your attention now to the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of God. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Amen. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin at verse 19. And then go down to verse 25. Give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. Our Father and our God. We come now to the preaching of your holy word, and our aim in the preaching of the word is to give you glory, Lord, that you would have from your people what is due to you, the corporate assembly of God, Father, that place where you come in your special presence to draw us to the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, again, no man is sufficient to preach such things. The man who preaches, Father, pleads for the Spirit of God, the very Spirit that inspired these words. So, Lord, give us the mind of Christ through the preaching of the word. Give the minister first the mind of Christ, but also on your dearly beloved blood-bought people who are here assembling together. These people, Lord, have not neglected the command to assemble together. So we ask that your blessings would be upon them in the preaching of the word. And they would attend to it with care, diligence, with much preparation, Father, to hear these as the very words of God preached to them. 
And so to that end, Father, we pray that you would now prepare us to meet with the Lamb of God, which was slain to take away our sin. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we began our series on worship last Lord's Day by considering the holiness of God in worship. Hearing that worship must take into consideration the fact that God is holy. And in worship, we draw near to this holy God who said that I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And as you have seen from Leviticus 10, while we didn't look at it in that sermon, this was said in the context of public worship. In a public worship service. And I just want to say that that is what, as we start this new series, our series is about. is the public worship of God. And uh, I want to preach then today to you on the theme of the necessity of public worship. And I want to preach on that theme because public worship has come under great attack. There's been a culture of laxness in the church as a whole concerning public worship. You know, it was not so long ago, even in this country, friends, that Reformed churches would have three services a week, two on the Lord's Day and one midweek. But it was common. Now we have one, and we are satisfied by that. And that speaks more to the decline of God's people than anything else. And that decline has accelerated. Now people will say, I will stay home. And I will watch a service on the television. That actually started before streaming. You remember the televangelists, right? And how people would stay at home. And and what is the fruit of that? Apostasy, which is the point of our text in Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to be careful. We're going to address this at the end of the sermon. Uh, I know we have those who cannot be here providentially due to health concerns or whatever else. And that's not what this is speaking to. We'll we'll talk about shut-ins and those who can't come to public worship and God's blessing on them uh, to be a little sanctuary, as he promised in the book of Ezekiel. But what we're talking about is for those like us, those who don't have any providential hindrances to be in worship. Friends, God is determined that his people would worship him publicly and together as the family of God. For that is the eternal state, isn't it? The family of God worshiping before the throne of God together. And what he's going to show us is that it is not only for his glory, but it is also for your health spiritually that you worship the Lord publicly as well. So with that, to introduce our theme and our sermon today, I want to divide our time to consider three truths about public worship. First, it is most glorifying to God. And it is also most glorious to the worshiper. Second, it has certain requirements in order to be called public worship. Not everything that is called worship, even if it is out in public, is what the Bible considers public worship. And third, which is sort of the the capstone here, is that it is not to be neglected by us. Not by the ministers and not by those who come to worship. So first... It is most glorious and most glorifying. Now, in our last sermon, you heard that our worship is service to God. 
Right? It is our serving God. And we say, if I receive a blessing from this time, praise the Lord. But I have come to serve God, for it's a duty that we owe him. We owe him worship, and we come to serve him in worship. And uh, just to, to designate what we're doing in this series, uh, if you are a confessional and you know uh, the Reformed Confessions, you know that there are three kinds of worship we speak of, right? We speak of uh, private or secret worship, right? That's what you do in the prayer closet, so to speak. There is family worship, which we gather around as families daily to worship the Lord. And then there is public worship. What we are conducting right now is public worship. It's not family and it's not secret worship. It's the gathering together of God's people to bow down before him. And our service to God in the public worship of God is what most pleases him. You heard it in Leviticus 10 verse 3. Before all the people, I will be glorified. God gets the glory the most in worship when he is glorified before all the people. Glorified before the assembly of his people. And that's what public worship is. Public worship, friends, is the kind of worship God delights in the most. It's the worship that he loves best. Um, We were in Psalm 87, what, three months ago, almost. Uh, And in Psalm 87, verse 2, you remember what the Lord said. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion, that is the church, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Do you remember what we meant by that or God means by that, boys and girls? He loves families worshiping together. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't love that. He loves families worshiping together. He loves the dwellings of Jacob. But he says he loves this, the gates of Zion, the gathering of all his people together. He loves the body of Christ, families, singles, widows, children, all together bowing down before their maker and kneeling. That they would say together as the people of God, Oh Lord, you have made us who were once not a people. The people of God. Thou art my maker and my redeemer. You have made us and not ourselves. And he loves that and it glorifies him in a great way. And his presence, his presence in in, in public worship is elevated, friends. He's here in a special way. Christ's presence is manifest in a special way among uh, his people in public worship. You remember in the book of the Revelation, what? Jesus walks among the candlesticks, among the lampstands. Boys and girls, I want to encourage you. Jesus Christ is here in a special way when you come to worship him in public worship. You may never have thought about that, but he is present, not in body, but in spirit. He stands, or what did we hear in the book of Revelation as well? He stands at the door and knocks in every worship service. That's where he does that work. And it is he who leads us in public worship too. Uh, you can get the wrong impression, even in our church. You know, in some other churches you hear about worship leaders, right? Uh, praise God, in the RP church we don't have that. But sometimes people think the minister is the worship leader in our circles. But he's not. Jesus leads you. In public worship. Hebrews 2 verse 12 says of Jesus. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church. I will sing praise unto thee. In the New Testament friends. 
public worship in the church is actually elevated over public worship in the Old Testament. Because Christ is here leading us and is among us. And with us together, how Jesus is glorified to see his work being praised. Isn't that what we're doing? We're praising the work of Jesus Christ that, as I have said, once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We're worshiping him for that, aren't we? I hope, I hope you are here to worship him for that mercy. Christ, our creator, Christ, our redeemer. And that's who we worship. And he is here in public worship. So God is most glorified and most desires public worship as in Psalm 87, but also for the worshiper. This is, and this takes faith. Everything about the New Testament worship requires the faith of the believer to be engaged because types and shadows are gone. And you have to apprehend, you have to comprehend the spiritual realities because if not, You're just here sitting on a chair which may not be very comfortable. You're opening up a book with some words. You're hearing a man say some things to God and you just put in an amen. You sing some words to a tune. And that is all that you apprehend and comprehend is happening here. But that's not the case, friends. It takes faith to understand what we are doing here. And I want you to consider how blessed New Testament public worship is due to the work of Christ. You know, Hebrews 10 says that the blood of Jesus has secured great blessings in public worship. And uh, one of the things I want you to notice about this Hebrews 10 text is that the entirety of the passage is almost entirely in the first person plural. What do I mean by that? Do you notice the pronouns, boys and girls, us and our, right? They dominate the text. And it is public worship that the apostle has in mind, New Testament public worship, distinguishing it from the Old Testament worship. We'll talk about that, that the Hebrews were tempted to return to. And with that in mind, consider this incredible statement in verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the Holiest by the blood of Jesus. Could you imagine? Now remember the audience here in the book of Hebrews. These are those who knew their Old Testament well. Could you imagine Old Testament saints hearing three concepts in that single verse that would stagger them about New Testament worship? The holiest, access, and boldness. What was the holiest place, boys and girls, do you remember? In the sanctuary in the temple. It was the holy of holies in the center of the temple, that innermost sanctuary, where the presence of God and the glory of God burned brightest on the earth. A place so holy, hidden behind the veil of the temple, a place only the high priest could go to on certain times a year. But they would go in with such fear and trepidation For they did not know if they would die before God. You remember, they tied a rope around the high priest and they put a bell in case he was struck dead inside the service. And and so the other priest could pull him out, his dead body. Again, that should remind you of Nadab and Abihu from last time around. This is the holiness of God. 
But due to Christ, what's incredible about those things is that if you know and you're steeped in that, due to Christ, with his body torn, we talked about the veil earlier. Here it is, with his body torn, the veil was too, his blood was shed, and we all have access with great boldness to the throne of grace right now. You have access to the holiest of holies. That's what New Testament worship gives you access to. And that should really, if you knew that by faith, really cause you to look at public worship in a totally different light. And I want to say something as well about the holiness of God here, because some people think that Hebrews 10 verse 19 erases Leviticus 10 verse 3. Some people say, look, look at the boldness we have. We don't have to fear coming before God. It says right here, we have great boldness to enter the throne of grace. That's hogwash, friends. This text increases our reverence and awe and worship. Because what this says is that you have not come into the court of the Gentiles to worship. Friends, as in the old covenant, you worship in the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. Otherwise, Paul would not say two chapters from now, serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. What you need to know is you come nearer to the holiness of God through Jesus Christ. You come nearer a consuming fire in the inner sanctum. You access a place God's people never dared enter into public worship ever before. And that's what's being done right now, friends. You have come so near to God in a way that would alarm Old Testament believers. And it is this great access to the presence of God through Jesus in public worship, which makes it most glorious to you who believe that by faith. This is worship that God is looking for. He said he was looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And it takes faith, friends, to know that right now you have entered the holiest of holies in public worship. And you think about, you know, sometimes we look back in the Old Testament and we we sort of snigger and laugh at the Old Testament saints sometimes and say, how is it that those at the Exodus didn't know God could part the waters, right? And we say, what little faith they must have had in this God. Well, I would just venture to say that most of us are the same way in public worship. That our faith is not so much in the reality of what is happening right now in public worship. That we do not know or understand that we come before a consuming fire into the inner sanctum. And I believe that if this congregation came by faith, knowing that you are meeting with God, he would truly pour out more of his presence among us. That if we would worship in this manner, in the manner that it reflects spiritual realities, even those who do not know God in our midst would recognize his presence and be converted. What does 1 Corinthians 14.25 say? Of those who are unbelievers, and thus the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Something to pray for, friends. That we would worship in such a way that we would know that God is here 
based on his promises. For he said, in all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. Exodus 20 verse 24. That's his promise. He said, in all the places, all the places where his name is named, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. Before you come to public worship, we talked about preparation a little bit last time. Before you come, pray, come Lord, meet with us. Come Lord, meet with us when we worship you. Bring the blessings your word promises. Help the elders conduct the service in a reverent way. Help me come to meet with God. Not just to show up to spend a few hours in worship, but to meet with God. And to meet with Him in a heightened way. And and the reason that New Testament worship is so simple as it is here is so that you by faith would see spiritual realities and not have the glory veil of the Old Testament covering up the glory of God. So public worship is most glorifying to God and most glorious for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And so in our next heading, I want us to see the requirements for public worship because not everything that is a gathering of the church is public worship. So the question must be asked, what makes worship public? Uh, If we seek to serve God and we seek to enter into the holiest of holies through Jesus, how do we know we are doing public worship? Or what distinguishes a large family gathering in our home where we open our Bibles, sing the Psalms, uh, read the word and pray from what we're doing right now? Or what distinguishes this time from a mere Bible study with a group of believers? Well, the church has seen three markers that public worship consists of. And I think they're self-evident if you think on them. Uh, The first is you have to have an assembly, which is what we have here. Second, you need to have ordinances that are suited only for public worship. And third, you have to have officers uh, leading in the service. So first, the assembly. Public worship requires an assembly. In Hebrews 10.25 we read the assembling of ourselves together. And ordinarily, that's more than a single family, right? Gathering together or worshiping together. Uh, Because this is a public meeting of the church, right? It's meant to be an open meeting. Uh, Anybody can come in from out there and join us in the public meeting of God. It's open to all who will come peaceably. Um, So even in an extraordinary case, let's say, you know, when a missionary goes to a new field with his family, for instance, uh, it may just be that they're here in the service. But so long as the doors are open to others to come in, it is still considered public worship. Um, So the doors may be open so others can join in. Now, we have already heard that it's the desire of God that his people assemble. Later on, we'll see the blessings that come when the body comes together. Because in the assembly, you know, as we consider that worship is meant to elevate Christ, one of the things that the Bible teaches about the body of Christ is when the body of Christ comes together, you see more of Christ, right? We see more of Christ with one another. And we are told here in Hebrews 10 to consider one another to provoke unto love and do good works. We'll talk about the after effects of public worship. Uh, But we are strengthened and edified when we assemble as the temple of God 
living stones knit together in public worship as the temple of God. But second, public worship has certain ordinances. And again, I think this is pretty self-evident, but some ordinances may only be observed in the public worship of God. And these are great ordinances that we dare not neglect, friends. Consider the sacraments, Lord's Supper and Baptism, right? These are not private ordinances. They can't be administered in our homes. They must be observed in public worship. Just think of the Lord's table itself. The very nature of it is a communal meal that has to be uh, done in public worship with the body of Christ assembled. You know, one of the great sins of our day, and I have even heard it in some of my friends who feel like they can take communion at home by themselves. Private communion. The very name testifies communion. It testifies against such a thing, right? This is a public ordinance of the church. Baptism's the same way. It's a public ordinance. We talked this morning about our faith is not a private faith. It's a public ordinance in front of all the people that this one is set apart for God. And what of the greatest means of grace itself? Preaching, right? It's the centerpiece of public worship. It cannot be observed in secret or family worship. Uh, First, the scripture says you need a preacher to preach, right? Uh, And we'll see that when we get to officers. And and so this is where today we find a lot of objection. Uh, Many say, well, maybe in the 17th century, it was true that you needed a preacher to preach. But today, and we're even streaming today on Sermon Audio, um, today I can just go to Sermon Audio, Pastor, and I can hear preaching 24-7. And I will say, yes, you will hear preaching, but not as it is meant to be experienced in public worship, as worship. See, sometimes, and I think we get this in from the broader church, we think that worship is our time of singing praise to God. But the preaching itself, we'll get to that when we get to the elements of worship later on. But in the preaching of the word, you are meant to worship There is something profound about being assembled for worship, friends. And I'll just say, uh, here's some just general applications of preaching, uh, just as a minister. When, When a minister preaches, he's preaching to you. He's preaching to you who are assembled here. And there's something profound. It is God preaching to you through the minister, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Preaching is actually meant to be an intimate time with God. Hearing the voice of God. You heard, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. Do you hear that? God is pleading to you through the minister of the gospel. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God's special presence, when it is here in the worship service, he speaks in a special way. And I think if you would ask any minister of the gospel... He will say there is a union here between preacher and the one in the seats. There's a connection between worshiper and preacher. I look into your eyes in the public worship of God. And your eyes are often considered the windows into your soul, friends. I see you tremble at the threatenings of the law. And I see that I must preach the gospel that lifts you to Christ for comfort. I see hardness or indifference when the grace of the gospel is preached. So I have to preach Sinai. Preachers are exhorted when they are trained that they have to exegete the congregation. 
as they preach, because it is a back and forth exercise. And it is a time of intimate communication with God. And only, only in the public worship of God do these things happen. God will always speak to you through the humblest minister of the gospel, who is a true minister, who is there preaching to you in person in a greater way than through sermon audio. Again, we may not feel that, but by faith we have to believe it. Which is not to say, I have not had my soul blessed through sermons preached. Absolutely, I have. I have been blessed through many sermons preached as sermon audio. But friends, you must believe that you come here to meet with God in the preaching of the word. And that cannot be done in any place but public worship. You know, one of the things in the worship of God that Paul compares the glory of the church is to the terrors of Mount Sinai, Hebrews 12. I want to listen you to listen to this because I think you're used to hearing it, but I want to, you to hear how preaching might fit in. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So there's a church which are written in heaven, and to God and judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. That's where you are today. By faith, you have to believe that. But do you hear, do you know how it concludes? See that ye refuse him not that speaketh. And he speaks, especially through the preaching of the word. It's a grave thing, friends, in public worship. To refuse the voice of God in the worship of God. Whether it is, by the way, in the public reading of the word, which we do every service, or it is through the preaching of it. And we'll get to preaching as a whole another sermon another day. But a final ordinance I want to mention to you that you only experience in the worship service is the benediction. The benediction. It too is only for the public worship of God. Through God's ministers. You know, the benediction is not a prayer. It isn't a prayer. Don't think of it as a prayer. It is the definite blessing of God that is pronounced to his people. And the mistake we make is, okay, this is just another prayer of the Bible. But you see in the Bible that in the public assembly of God, the high priest came to give that blessing. And this is why sometimes they... um, they, they, sometimes you'll notice that men will mangle the Aaronic blessing uh, as well. They'll, they'll do things like they'll add the word uh, may to it, right? The, the benediction is the Lord bless thee and keep thee. It's not may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. And that's important because it is a definite blessing that comes to the people of God. And so the benediction as well is the place where you get the blessing of God. And you must apprehend these things by faith, friends. And so public worship has certain ordinances. Third, public worship has officers. And so it's not a public worship service without officers ordained by Christ to lead it. Um, Do you notice that pastors and elders are called shepherds, right? Called shepherds. They lead the people in public worship. Psalm 107, verse 32. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. You see, elders are associated with the congregation 
of God's people. Christ has entrusted them with the keys of the kingdom to open and shut, to bind and loose, to shepherd his people and in worship. And what you have to see the worship service as is a constant shepherding activity. From the sermons that are chosen to be preached to the various elements of the service to confessing our sins in prayer from the call to worship that begins it all. And we recognize God calls us to worship, to singing the Psalms with understanding, to the reading of the word, to remove any difficulties, to the preaching of the word, which is the voice of the good shepherd applying his word to you, to that final benediction, the blessing of God from on high to his people. You are to be shepherded through the worship of God by the shepherds of God's people. That falls especially to the teaching elders ordained to preach and administer sacraments, pastors or ministers, called laborers in word and doctrine, called stewards of the mysteries of God, gifted and called to this office. We cannot have public worship without them. That's why Christ, one of the reasons Christ asked us, pray for more laborers for the harvest. Every empty pulpit in our denomination and every Reformed church grieves me. Once more, I say our great need is men to be sent from God. To preach the gospel and also to lead us in worship. Used by God to draw us to the holiest place. And let me then speak a bit about church government real quickly here. We'll probably talk about it later in worship. It does not belong, and this is a thing we have to contend against, that would have been unimaginable, I think, even a hundred years ago in the broad church. It does not belong to the unordained to conduct worship services. Neither does it belong, and this is the other part of it, to the civil magistrate to conduct worship services. Or, this is important, I think, for a particular application, nor does it belong to the magistrate to prohibit them. And this is Presbyterianism 101. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Confession of Faith 23, paragraph 3. And that's why we're not Anglicans, friends, but we're Presbyterians. And the pain Presbyterians suffered under Anglicanism should run deep in our circles. But we seem to have forgotten it. And too many of us have handed over the keys of the kingdom to the magistrate, especially in this pandemic. If the magistrate interferes with the worship of God, and this is a broader application than just what's been going on, If the magistrate interferes with the worship of God or wishes to take on its duties themselves, elders must do their duty as Azariah the priest. Do you remember him? In 2 Chronicles 26, verse 18, speaking of the priests, they withstood Uzziah the king and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests of the sons of Aaron that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, For thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. This is the public worship of God, friends. And God has ordained ministers to manage it. Civil rulers have no power to interfere with, prohibit, or conduct worship services. That is not their domain. Full stop. No qualifications. You remember Jehovah said to the most powerful civil magistrate on the face of the planet, let my people go that they may serve me. 
Exodus 7, verse 16. Boys and girls, you know what happened to that Pharaoh, don't you? Good. The same will happen to every man who wishes to exert himself over God's worship. Uh, The Reformed faith, if you're new to it, sees two independent spheres of authority. There is the magistrate who has authority over the civil realm. And then there are the ministers who have authority, ministers and elders who have authority over the ecclesiastical sphere or the church. And when they're working at their best, they work together for the sake of true religion, both advising one another. You remember what our confession is called, some of you? It's called the humble advice of the West, the Assembly of Divines, right? The, the advice given to Parliament. So as the elders, we can take the civil magistrate's advice when it comes to conducting services. But we cannot and must not give them a blank check. We cannot hand over the keys. Otherwise, we would make the King of England or the President of the United States the head of the church, which is blasphemous. For instance... As we apply it even to our congregation, you know, at the beginning of this COVID-19 situation, we limited services at first, taking the magistrate's uh, rule as advice. Uh, We didn't know what this virus was like. We heard in other states, morgues were overflowing. We had vulnerable saints here, right? But as time went on, we opened services back up. But today, I think for our session, I won't speak for them, but if the magistrate tells us, as they have told our Canadian brethren, shut down, even if we have to go underground, we would conduct worship services. These decisions are entrusted to the elders. Yes, we will take the magistrate's advice, but they have no power here. If the governor came in and told us to shut down, we would have to resist as the elders. You can't do that. This is not your place. It does not appertain to you. Or as our Reformed forebears might call them, you silly vassal. Anyhow, that said, I think this is a necessary reminder about the public worship of God in our time. Because in our time, many pharaohs have arisen that don't remember Joseph. They are not God-fearers in office and they hate the Christian religion and we must be suspicious of their motives. As the Pharaoh of the Exodus who did not remember Joseph, they do not understand the worship of God is essential. But it is. It is, friends, for God must be glorified and we must meet with him. If Job can say, I have esteemed the uh, words of his mouth more than my necessary food, I believe you can say that of public worship as well. We must meet with him together at Mount Zion in the beauty of holiness and public worship. It should be our desire if we know our God. And again, I'm not speaking about uh, take being reckless. I've already mentioned this in a previous sermon. Uh, you know, if there are precautions we need to take, so be it to keep the sixth commandment. <laughs> but we can take it all as under advisement, advisement from the civil magistrate. Well, anyways, if you know your God, if you have tasted and seen that he is good... How can you not be pained by being away from public worship? This is what we heard in the psalm we sang, didn't we? And so that question takes us to our final heading, which is that public worship is not to be neglected. Let me reread verses 23 through 25 in Hebrews 10. And there's something vital for you to know about public worship here. 
Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. A plain commandment. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We're even told, brothers and sisters, here's a, here's a, a thing for you. Exhort one another. Not just me. Exhort each other to not neglect. If you know a brother or sister who has been outside of public worship, exhort them. You need to come and worship God. It doesn't matter if it's this church or another true church. Go worship God. And we are even told to exhort more as the day approaches. We'll talk about what he means by that. But the context of this, and this is again why we're in Hebrews simultaneously. The context of this, you know, is in the greater theme of the book. But found even in the immediate context. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Paul is speaking of apostasy, friends. Let me give you plainly the devil's prescription for apostasy, the neglect of public worship. For in public worship, the both vertical, so between us and God, and horizontal bonds are formed. There is a bond that is formed with your God when you meet with him, and he gives you more of himself in the means of grace. But also the Bible sees that there is a bond formed with one another when you worship together. And that is plain to see in the text. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works and exhorting one another. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Congregation, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace increases when you worship with one another. Your faith is strengthened. You help each other along in the race. You are fed by God. You are edified by one another. And God greatly honors your service and worship, beloved. And that is something, again, you must believe by faith. And the neglect of public worship goes beyond your mere presence. You can be present in your seat, but you can neglect public worship. By not sanctifying this time, this is why we started with that theme last time, by not sanctifying this time in your heart or mind, by being disinterested, by not serving the Lord with a holy exertion. (laughs) You know, I think it's part of, well, first it's part of the flesh. But there is, we live in a therapeutic society where everything kind of has to go and be easy for us. But Matthew eleven twelve speaks of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. You have to take the kingdom by force. You have to exert yourself in public worship. You're not to neglect to serve the Lord in public worship. Listen to this word that is so foreign to this current generation in Hebrews eleven six. He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That word diligence, boy, it's a constant struggle in our day and age to exhort men and women to be diligent. And I think that's why so few of us get the blessing of public worship. Diligence is called for in the Christian faith. And so, boys and girls, I'll exhort you as well. Serve the Lord in public worship, too. That's why you're here. You can neglect worship by even being here. And that's a solemn truth. Pay attention. Uh, Some practical applications. Boys and girls, 
try to use the bathroom before the service begins. And uh, go and use it, and then you'll be fine to be able to be here. When you're here, focus on the Word. Focus on the Word of God yourself. Don't trust that your parents will cover it for you, right? You yourself must focus on the Word. Focus on the Psalms that we sing and the beauty of the words. They are the words of God. Pray along with your elder who is praying. And children, that comes to the neglect of public worship, I want to clue you into a tactic of the world. You know, the world is going to more and more tempt you to think that you are missing out because you're coming to public worship. To be here instead of at sports games or recitals or or whatever else. And in this congregation, I know you sacrifice many of these things, boys and girls, to be here. Uh, That doesn't go unnoticed among your elders, but especially it doesn't go unnoticed by Christ. In his book of remembrance, he will remember what you have given up for his sake. Uh, if you need a biography to, to, to look at in this theme, you can go read a biography on like Eric Little, right? You remember him of Scotland, how he refused sports on the Sabbath, even the Olympic Games. And you know how much pressure was exerted on him by the government to, to honor Great Britain in running the race. But how the Lord blessed him for his stance. The man, that man knew which race was more important to run the race looking to Jesus than to run a race in the Olympics. It was more important to him than earthly glory. He chose the better portion as you have by being here today, boys and girls. And your parents, I want you to always remember why your parents bring you here because they want you to be in heaven with them. Uh, To neglect the public worship of God, your reading in the word of God, boys and girls, puts you square on the road to apostasy. They love your soul and they want you in heaven with Jesus and themselves. And so for us as parents, let's resist the temptations of the world by God's help. For in this text, you hear that to neglect the public worship of God leads to apostasy. And it also speaks to the idea, and this is maybe sometimes ignored in our circles a bit, but public worship, I think the older divines understood this well, uh, public worship is meant to carry into our lives. Uh, What do you hear here in the context of worship? Provoke one another unto love and to good works. That happens when the body is together. You know, one of the most encouraging things I see about this body And the Lord's work among you is many of you provoke one another after worship services. See, this time where we meet with God is meant to provide fruit in our lives with one another as we are connected. There is an after effect to public worship. Having drawn near to God, do you not think that with God's glory shining on you as it did on Moses... As you are being transformed from glory to glory, that you will not provoke one another to love and to good works. This is the blessing of public worship. And contrary to our flesh's inclination, so first of all, well, let me back up just a bit, continue to provoke one another to love and to good works. After worshiping God, how can you, without, with a love for God, not have love for neighbor to one another, the nearest neighbors you have? <laughs> are those who have the same spirit. And contrary to our flesh's inclination, the apostle says you need more worship 
so much the more as ye see the day approaching. And I thought that is such a great theme to preach on as a separate thing, but I, I won't be able to. But the day in view here is the day of the Lord. And as the end of the age draws nigh, he says we must assemble more and more often. And there's a general principle to that, of course, that as things become more difficult for you or the body, you must worship more and not less. You know, our being at the seminary, I think I've mentioned this before. Some of the Chinese brethren who are there, you know, basically undercover, they, they said that they would meet for hours on end every morning praying together publicly. Well, as they can there to worry about the, the state there. But they would, the more persecuted, the more that they were in distress, the more they would worship the Lord together. And that's what the theme here says. So much the more as you see the day approaching. And that means any difficulty. Brother or sister, when you are despondent, you need to come to worship. You need it. Jesus will meet you here. It's a solemn promise. And your brethren here, what an encouragement it is to us when we are despondent, we come to public worship and our brethren provoke you unto love and to good works. You need it. I need it. And if the screws tighten on the church in our age, let's have more meetings and not fewer. So much the more as you see the day approaching. And what of you when that last day of yours draws nigh? You need to worship more and not less. No saint has bemoaned on their deathbed that they worship the Lord too often. I spoke with an elderly woman in Stillwater at a memory care facility. You know what her great grief was? No longer being able to assemble corporately with the body. I visited uh, in her room with Pastor Bruce Parnell in Stillwater. She had her Bible open there on, on her chair. And when we came in, she started making herself up, saying, are we going to church now? And one of the hardest things I had to witness was Pastor Bruce telling her that she could not, though she wanted to. We wanted to, too, but her family wouldn't allow her to leave. One day, brethren, you may not be able to publicly worship God until you go to glory. As they say... You do not know what you have until it is gone. Until the presence of God in public worship is no more for you. Do not neglect public worship while you still can. And all the more as your last day approaches. And the more that you worship the Lord, the less doubts you will have on your deathbed as you prepare to meet the Lord. Instead, it will be a sweet time for you when the day approaches. I'm about to worship the Lord beholding his face, and I will see God. But a saint who hasn't been in public worship starts, starts to doubt all the more and has more and more uh, concerns about the state of their soul. And speaking of which, the last thing I want to deal with, which I promised I would address at the beginning, was time of life or providential situations. I've been preaching on ordinary meetings, applicable, as I said, to most of us. Uh, but there are times, as with that dear elderly lady, you, you just can't assemble. Whether uh, you're gravely ill, or you're shut in, or you are persecuted and thrown in a dungeon, as John Bunyan was. Uh, you need to remember, friends, if it is providence that is keeping you out of public worship, the Lord is gracious. 
and he will care for you still. Especially if, like with that older woman, if she, I had the sense, I could think of it when I, I, I thought on her. I just was reminded of Psalm 122 of David who said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Which is what our heart must be like before service, before we come. But the great pain for David's heart was when he was kept from public worship. Do you remember that in the 42nd Psalm? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept holy day. And how that pained him. But if it is God's providence that keeps you out of worship and not your hard heart and you yearn for public worship and you miss it, I want you to always remember Ezekiel 11 verse 16. This is speaking of the faithful who are scattered among the nations. Thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. God is gracious, friends. Praise God. He says he will give himself to you when you're without public worship due to his own providence. And one of our families cannot be with us due to health. And I trust the Lord is a little sanctuary to them even now. For God is good. And as we heard this morning, God is love. But for the rest of us, Let us not take advantage of his grace and neglect the public worship of God, lest we find ourselves to be apostates. And finally, as we remember, the heavens were torn open this morning, a place of unceasing public worship. I'll just give you a picture of what the eternal state is like from the seventh chapter of the Revelation. After this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. Do you see the corporate gathering of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb. And all the elders stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. That is where you, the children of God, are headed, friends. And you are headed there together. Do you see that there? Learn to love public worship and learn also to love one another. Otherwise, you might find you are unfit for heaven. And that's a terrible thought, for it would mean that you are an apostate. So may Christ be glorified as we have served him today in public worship. Let's rise for prayer.